as we close this series, I want to start off by talking about an experience that, honestly, I, I hope many of you have never had, never will have. Um, but the experience is this, with full knowledge that some of us at least have had this experience, and, and maybe a lot of us, I don't know. But it's one of those experiences, maybe an era in your life, maybe an incident, whatever it was, but it, it's that one thing that... You know, you can kind of own your own humanity on most days. You can own that you're not going to be perfect. Things are not always going to go right. But, but it's that one time, it's that one experience, it's that one season in your life where you found yourself doing something, enmeshed in something that was, that was just so contrary to who you now want to be, and you just can't quite get over it. You, you feel varying degrees of shame and guilt even though it might have been a long time ago. It's just kind of one of those experiences that left sort of a gaping wound. And maybe you've tried lots of different ways to get past it, to get over it, but it just keeps kind of working its way at times back up to the surface, stealing your joy, stealing your enthusiasm, enthusiasm, incapacitating you in various ways. And you're still trying to figure out, even with God's grace, you're trying to figure out how do I get past this? Do I get past this? It's something that stings because we feel greatly ashamed that it ever occurred. We're going to meet an individual tonight that has one of those experiences, or it's his night of the soul. And he's an individual that we know in Scripture as a chosen leader by Jesus. In fact, he, he's the chosen leader of all the apostles. In all the list of the apostles, the number one person is Peter. And most of us know a little bit about Peter. You know, he was kind of impetuous and excited easily, but he was also somebody that had fierce loyalty to Jesus. So we're going to talk about this night in his life, and we're calling it this, the, the night of repudiation and restoration. And I want to talk a little bit about what I'm saying here. We live in a day and age where uh, love sort of summarizes what people equate with Jesus. And so it's this notion that Jesus is all about love. So anything that has to do with love, Jesus is just going to affirm. Jesus, because he's love and he's loving, he just affirms everything. He would, he would never, ever make someone feel uncomfortable. He just kind of affirms whatever our dreams, whatever our desires, whatever most of society feels is normative. And yet we all know on some level that that's not really love. If I am doing something that is knowingly or excuse me that you know is harmful for me and yet you affirm me well you're not being loving if you if you conf if you confront me and correct me that well that's loving so first of all sometimes we need to be repudiated we need to be corrected we need to be confronted and because God loves us because he is willing to make us feel uncomfortable at times make us feel uncomfortable for a little while so that we don't have to feel very regretful maybe for the rest of our lives. So repudiation and restoration, we're going to see that these two things go together. God is always about restoring. He's always forgiving. He always wants us to yet become who he created us to become and do what he yet created us to do. But we go through these ups and downs in life. So we're going to go to a portion of Scripture in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, where Christ has now been showing himself alive from the dead to his disciples for the third time. This is the third time. It's about two weeks from the time that he was crucified but the disciples led by Peter had gone back to fishing it had been about two weeks and Peter's like hey you know I'm I'm going back to fishing perhaps because Peter felt he was no longer fit to be the leader of the apostles that Jesus had called him to be so it starts out they went out 
and they got into the boat, but that night, this is their last night in the series, they caught nothing. So you read that Jesus tells them to cast the net on a different side of the boat. He had done this at the very beginning of his ministry when he met some of the disciples about three and a half years earlier. He tells them to cast their net. They do, even though they fished all night and caught nothing. They catch 153 fish. They drag it ashore. And then Peter realizes that the Lord was on shore with the fire, and he was evidently cooking them breakfast. And Peter, he, he leaps out of the boat into the water to get to Jesus first. So, so we know that Peter, even though he had gone through quite an upheaval, he still loved Jesus. And maybe you've gone through some upheavals in your life, some things you deeply regret now, the things that you, you, you try to fight out of your mind and your memory, but they keep resurfacing. But you, you know that even when it was happening on some level, you loved Jesus. You, you wanted to do the will of God, and, and now you're back restored uh, fully devoted to doing his will I, ho I hope that describes everybody in this room today let me go on with the story when they had finished eating so Jesus fixes them breakfast when they had finished eating Jesus said to Simon Peter that was just you know another expanded name of Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these now to make sense of this let me give you a little previous background the night that Jesus was betrayed the night that he was going to go to the cross he's eating the last supper with his disciples and he tells them he said this night the shepherd is going to be struck and all of you the sheep are going to going to flee for your lives and peter pops up and says you know <clears throat> everybody else may forsake you lord everybody else may run and desert you but i won't run i'll even go to the death with you rather than desert you and jesus says to peter he says this this night before the rooster crows for the early morning this night you will deny me three times and of course, Peter didn't believe that for one second. And he was comparing himself kind of superior to the other disciples and spoke really insultingly to them in the process. Nevertheless, he tells Jesus, no way, no how. Jesus says, no, in fact, Peter, before this night is over, you'll deny me three times. Keep that in, in the background. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Remember, that was his boast. They would flee, but he would not. Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Lambs being new followers of Jesus. It goes on. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. This is a, the word for pastor. It's, it's ten. Look over, lead, guide, feed, nurture, take care of, correct, direct my sheep. More mature followers of Jesus. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Third time, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. He, he got it now. It sunk in. It, it hit the mark. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep so he takes him kind of back to it again now we have to think about what was it what was it that caused Peter after he had said he would never leave in his devotion to Jesus and he meant it when he said the rest of them might run but I won't run I'll stay loyal to you even if I have to die he meant every word that he said but but then he denies Jesus that night three times remember he's he's following as Jesus is arrested and he's watching as the trials go on 
And this young girl is the first one that asked him, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And No, no, I'm not one of his disciples. And it finally goes three full cycles where he denies Jesus. But, but why? Why did Peter deny Jesus? Well, typically people say that, you know, well, he, he just got scared. When, when he saw Jesus arrested and it looked like Jesus was not resisting in any way, shape, or form, he, he just kind of panicked. He just got afraid. But I want to suggest to you today that that's not what I think the reason is really supported by Scripture, that he was afraid. How many of you remember a, a fellow from Scripture, some of you that know the Bible a little bit better, you remember a man's name, Malchus. Does that ring a bell with anybody, Malchus? Well, let me just show you who Malchus was. When they came and arrested Jesus in the garden, Malchus was one of the ones in the arresting party. And one of Jesus' disciples happened to have a sword with him. Anybody remember who the disciple was that had the sword? Just say it out loud. Yeah, it was Peter. And Peter took the sword, and the Scripture says he cut Malchus's ear off. Now, I want you to think about what that looks like, okay? Do you think Peter was such an aim that he's like going down like this to try to cut Malchus's ear off, or do you think he's doing one of these to try to cut Malchus's head off, right? He is trying to take Malchus's head off. He cuts his ear off. It's kind of a comedic scene. Jesus picks up the ear, patches it back on him, and heals him, okay? Tells Peter to put up his sword. But my point is this. Peter wasn't afraid. He wasn't any coward. He, he was ready to fight. Now, there's another reason, though. Why then did he deny Jesus three times? And we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Now, I want to take you to another portion of Scripture that kind of casts some light on this, and I hope to cast some additional light. In Luke 18, 31, and this is right at the very end of Jesus' ministry, just months before he goes to the cross, Jesus took the 12 apostles aside, and he said to them, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that the prophets wrote about the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to foreigners. They will make fun of him, insult him, spit on him, whip him, and kill him. But on the third day, he will come back to life. Jesus couldn't have been more plain. Now, he said this at the beginning of his ministry. He said it at the middle. He said it twice at the end. He's trying to get across to them that he, the Christ, the Messiah, was going to allow himself to be victimized. He was going to be killed. But I want you to see what happens. But they, meaning all the apostles, including Peter, but they didn't understand any of this what he said was a mystery to them, and they didn't know what he meant. Now, there's another scene earlier on where Jesus says, you know, I'm going to be, you know, arrested, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise from the grave. It's in Matthew 16. It was a scene where Jesus is asking his disciples, he said, hey, who do people say that I am? And again, it was toward the, the end of the third year of his ministry. And they say, well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the Baptist. And, and then Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, which meant the Messiah. You're, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Simon, but my Father in heaven. Meaning, because Peter was already a worshiper of the Father, he saw the Father in Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of God. And so Jesus commends him for speaking out and recognizing this revelation. He says, listen, I'm, I'm going to build my church, my assembly, my congregation. I'm going to build on that understanding. When people see God in me, meaning Jesus that they will become my family, my forever family. But then within just minutes, Jesus gives that same thing to them. He says, hey, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be crucified, but, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. And Peter literally, read it in on your own, Matthew 16, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And he says, no, no, Lord, never. 
In other words, Peter still could not conceive of the Christ. The Jews have been waiting for 1,500 years for the Christ, the Messiah. He couldn't conceive of the Christ, the Messiah, allowing himself to be beaten and manhandled by mere human beings because the Jewish picture of the Christ, the Messiah, was he was going to be the most powerful person on the planet. He would overthrow the governments of the world and use his force, his supernatural ability to just take control of everyone and everything and bring in God's rule on the planet. So this notion of a weak Messiah that will allow himself to be beaten, spit on, and then ultimately crucified, it, it, didn't, it didn't mix. Now, Jesus, he kept explaining that that's the kind of Messiah he was going to be because he didn't want to just win people through sheer force and fear. He sought to win the trust, the hearts of those who could be reached by revealing the truth about the Almighty God, that the Almighty God is ruled by sacrificial love. Jesus did that by going to the cross. He sought to win the hearts of those whose trust, whose affection, whose admiration could be won back. He, he was the Messiah that was gathering together the family of God for all eternity, not just establishing his kingdom on earth then. He kept trying to tell this to his disciples, but they just didn't want to hear it. And so here's what I believe was happening. When Peter denies Jesus, he's watching, he's following along. Now, if Peter was a coward, he could have just ran right away as soon as Jesus was arrested and he cut Malchus's ear off. But he didn't run. He follows Jesus along. That's why they were able to keep questioning. Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? No, I'm not his disciple. Hey, no, no, I'm sure you were one of his disciples. No, I'm not his disciple. So he was watching what was going to happen to Jesus, and here's what I believe was behind it. He was waiting for Jesus to finally, as it were, put on the Superman cape and just extinguish all his enemies at once. Peter was waiting, still expecting Jesus to use his power to establish his kingdom, but he didn't understand. That's not the kind of Messiah that he wanted to be. He wants to be the Messiah that wins the trust, the hearts, the admiration, the affection by revealing himself as he is. The almighty God, the most powerful being in the universe, but whose power is always governed by his sacrificial love. He's the safest, he's the best, he's the most beautiful, he's the most wonderful person in the universe. And he only wants as his followers and as his forever family, those that, that see that beauty and whose trust he wins. Peter and the disciples couldn't, couldn't get that. So Peter, I believe, far from being a coward, he was just waiting and watching for Jesus to sort of break out. Now, we can't, we can't say for sure that's what the reason was, but it, it makes sense scripturally. So this then sets up this, this critical conversation that Jesus has with Peter. It's a, it's a stinging conversation. There, there's nothing affirming, at least partially affirming about it. He's bringing up a subject that Peter wanted to forever forget. And I started out by saying the likelihood is at least some of us, maybe, maybe a lot of us, We've got some things in our past, maybe existing in our present, that, that we would rather forget. We, we, we've got some incidences. We've got some eras in our life. We've got some occurrences. We've got some things we were participants in, some things we've done, some things we've said, some things maybe we should have done and didn't. And they haunt us. They torment us. They, they, they pierce through all of our rationalities, all, all our attempts to legitimize, rationalize, minimize. Nothing works. It just makes us feel bad about existing. It torments us. It, it sort of is incapacitating in a lot of ways. It makes us want to hide. It makes us want to escape. We, we try to forget, but it just keeps pushing its way back up. And we feel really bad about ourselves, no matter what else is going on with our life. You might remember 
early in Jesus' ministry, there was a, a group of guys, it was four guys, and they, they got this paralyzed guy because Jesus was healing of all diseases. They bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. They literally let him down through the roof, and this paralyzed man is laying before Jesus. And Jesus speaks to the paralyzed guy, and he says, Son, your sins are all forgiven. Well, the religious leaders that were standing by there who did not trust in Jesus at all, they, they start whispering, who is this guy I think he is? Nobody can forgive sins except God alone. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he, he says to them, he says, well, which is easier, to say, son, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? And so Jesus, after he pronounces forgiveness of sins to this paralyzed man, he then raises him up and restores him physically now here's the real point behind the miracle it was a a definite physical miracle but the point is this why did Jesus say to the man first your sins are forgiven the man never said a word because Jesus knew this man was incapacitated by guilt if you and I have not resolved guilt and shame the one and only way that it can be which is you know with a real close eye to eye heart to heart spirit to spirit conversation with our creator well, then we will be to various degrees incapacitated, paralyzed in various portions of our lives. And God wants us to be whole. He wants us to be free. And that necessitates a critical conversation. Some of us in here, we will not escape the incapacitation from unresolved guilt and unresolved shame until we're willing to have some, a very uncomfortable conversation with Christ, our Creator, our Lord. And he has this uncomfortable conversation with Peter. He's bringing back up the incident that Peter so badly wanted to forget. The thing Peter was most ashamed of. The thing that Peter felt, I would never do this, and yet he had done it. So let's consider a couple things. First of all, in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus is writing to a particular church, and he says, I correct and I discipline those whom I what? Love. Now this is very different way of thinking than the way a lot of people in our society think today we, we kind of think that if you love me you'll affirm me you'll no matter what it is I want no matter what it is I'm dreaming of no matter what it is I'm doing you will affirm me but that's not the way God works he knows what's best wants what's best and his love compels him to correct us and to discipline us because he loves us and we've got to get our heads around that. He's having this painful conversation with Peter, bringing things up that Peter did not want to ever think about again, but he's doing it because he needs to correct Peter and he needs to discipline. Peter was proud. He denigrated the other disciples. He said, they may run. He had no right to say that. In fact, they all did not run. He was proud. He was you know, kind of content to depend on his own abilities rather than his strength that he finds in God, and that needed to be corrected. So be honest and change your hearts and lives. Now, that's the good news. When God corrects us, when he disciplines us, it's because he knows we can change. He knows we can grow. It doesn't matter what habit. It doesn't matter what occurrence in the past that's caused us so much guilt and shame. It, it can be cleansed. It can be changed. I'm just curious. How, how many of you, when you were a kid, maybe you were running, you know, on some gravel or something like that, but you, you're running like crazy. Next thing you know, you, you go down, and so you're, you're all skinned up, man. You've got gravel and dirt and everything all on your knees and your hands, and so you're wounded. You're, you're, you're kind of bleeding, and you're kind of, it's got dirt and everything in your wounds. How many ever had one of those things when you were a kid? Okay, almost always, right? Well, back in my day, believe it or not, uh, they had this stuff, it, it, it was called iodine. Anybody ever heard of iodine? Yeah, well, well, 
they, they start trying to pull the dirt and the gravel out of your wounds. How many know that does, never feel, and not, does not feel good? There's, there's, there's no way that feels good. But then they put this, this iodine, and the iodine was like taking a blowtorch and putting on the wound. I mean, really, later on came mercurochrome. It, it looked the same as iodine, but it didn't hurt like iodine. But the point of it was you have to cleanse some wounds so that it doesn't get infected and become far worse. But the cleansing, this is the part we got to hear, the cleansing is not comfortable sometimes. The cleansing really hurts. We would rather avoid it if we can. Peter never wanted this conversation with Jesus where he's bringing up three times, three denials, three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? But it needed to happen because that would have haunted Peter forever. We, we can't say for sure what Jesus' eyes looked like or the tone of his voice. But I got to believe, consistent with what we know about God as he reveals himself in Jesus, that the whole time that he's communicating with Peter, he's communicating through his eyes and the tone of his voice a kind of a love that, <laughs> that we've always wanted to hear and see but never have. And so he's, he's confronting Peter. He's helping him face his pain. He's helping him face the failure that he feels the worst about. Let that sink in if you happen to have a failure or a set of failures that you feel the worst about. You know, another kind you're always trying to rationalize, legitimize, forget, drink it away, busy it away, buy it away. You're trying to get it, but it just keeps working its way back up because you just feel so disgusted with your own humanity. And Jesus wants us to come really close and get really uncomfortable. He wants us to walk toward him, and that means walking toward our pain. And he's going to walk us through this thing. But he's doing it to cleanse so that it does not get infected and does not continue to unnecessarily incapacitate us. The book of Hebrews 12, it adds to this concept. It says in verse 10, God disciplines us. Why? Why? For our own, what does it say? for our good we love our kids so we discipline them we guide them we direct them we know what's best we want what's best we tell them what's best because we love them but this goes on it says for our own good so that remember whenever you see so that in scripture you want to kind of perk your ears and eyes up so that because he's telling us the why behind the what so that we can become what does it say holy like who like him whoa wait a minute you, you mean God actually wants in this lifetime for us to grow, for us to develop, to become holy like God, like Christ himself is holy. That in other words, if I'm in a healthy, a healthy place in life, if I'm normal, if I'm a fully matured, fully healthy human being, I am going to be like God. That's what it's teaching. This life was meant to be a developmental journey where we're progressively becoming holy like God, which means I love what is right. I love what is good. I always do what is right. I always do what is good. I'm, I'm living the way God lives, which means I'm going to feel inside the way that God feels, and that's where the big surprise comes. When we feel inside the way God feels, we find this joy rising up. We find this peace. We find this goodwill because God is altogether good, and we were wired, we were built, we were image-made to carry that same thing. And so any form of evil, it's like sand in the interior machinery. It spoils our capacity. I'm going to give you a list of things that it does to us a little bit later on. So 
we gotta get this in our head. In Christian world, we, we, you've heard me say before that a lot of churches, they make it sound as if God is in the transportation business, not the transformation business. You know, like, we gotta get everybody to go to heaven. If you, you listen to some churches, like, every Sunday, you gotta be born again, you gotta be born again. Gotta make sure you're going to heaven, you know, as opposed to what the Bible actually teaches, which, which is this. God's ultimate purpose and eternal plan. If we, if we pull all the curtain back and say, what is life all about? Why is there anything instead of nothing? What is God, the Almighty's eternal plan? What is it that he's up to? Well, here it is. Did this in a series a while back. It's the development of an eternal family. Okay, he wants a family. He wants to see others enjoy the kind of quality of life he himself does. That's the best gift he could give. An eternal family of Christ-like beings. I'm still me, you're still you, but we're Christ-like united in loving devotion to Christ he will always be king of kings and lord of lords and one another we're going to live for all eternity as this family of God Christ-like beings who love God love righteousness love one another hence there will be eternal life and joy for all but that transformation process starts here it starts in this life and sometimes to move us forward in that we've got to have these uncomfortable conversations with the Lord meaning the Lord is going to look he's going to bring his light upon various aspects of our life and he's going to say you got to change that that's got to go you need to develop this that needs to be developed because that's who you're really meant to be and the life that you're seeking it's not going to it's not going to happen inside you until you're willing to change these things and start to become holy like God himself is holy in the book of Ezra we get get a powerful expression of what unresolved guilt and shame can do to us Ezra chapter 9 verse 6 it says I'm too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift my face up to you when we have inefficiently resolved guilt and shame it gets really uncomfortable to get close to God in any way shape or capacity we're not very motivated to be around God we're not we don't want to get in his word we don't want to let his word get in us we don't want to get around God's people we we want to avoid God because we feel guilt and shame we, we just want to hide away we feel like he's always looking at that that failure that we had that we can't really get out of our heads it goes on to say because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens so when we let, let me just you're going to see a different title in that but when we do what God says is sin which is merely uh, living contrary to the way God designed us we're designed to live like God himself lives and love like God himself loves when we don't live that way or when we have not resolved efficiently our guilt and shame here's what happens inside of us whether we know it or not now this is a lot to take in so I would urge you either watch it again on the video uh, write it down in your notes or something get, get along with God so you can, you can see these things a little bit more deeply but denial of Jesus and inefficiently resolved guilt and shame result in first of all the clouding of our spiritual perspective and objectivity whereas when we're living attuned to God spiritual reality as it's revealed in God's word it, it's our governing reality we're living in God's light every day we have clarity we have objectivity we can see what is right we can see what is wrong we can um, experience the presence of God and be comfortable the second thing it does is the dulling of our spiritual senses our, our consciences for example they, they weaken they get inaccurate our God enlightened reasoning faculties they, they get muddy they get weak we can't use our imagination to see life in the way that God does we can't use our imagination to resolve issues and so forth the atrophy of our spiritual capacities especially for joy 
We start losing joy, but we don't know why. And when we lose joy, we become vulnerable to all kinds of temptations. We, we want something to make us feel better, something to alter our mood. It doesn't matter what it is. It can be sex. It can be drugs. It can be alcohol. It can be buying things, winning things, doing things, achieving things. We just want something to change our mood because we don't have joy. We're, we're not having that inward sense of well-being that comes when we're aligned with the way God designed us. The draining of our spiritual enthusiasm and motivation. We're, we're not motivated to serve God, to serve others. We, we're just, we're just kind of lethargic. We just don't care. It also causes the disintegrating of our spiritual stability and power. And that's where it gets dangerous because um, we start becoming vulnerable to temptation. Things that we thought we would never do, we're suddenly very tempted to do. And then ultimately the losing of our spiritual comfort in the presence of God, which I've touched on before. We, we get where... The one that we need the most, the place that we most need to be, we're the least comfortable in. Peter did not want to have that conversation with Jesus. If Peter could have avoided it, he would have. But Jesus knew that he needed it. Listen, can we accept that sometimes God has got to make us feel very uncomfortable so that he can do the cleansing work and the healing work and we can know that when he sees me at my worst, Jesus was zeroing in. He, he knew that was Peter's worst hour. He's zeroing in on it. He's saying, look at me, Peter. Look at me. I, I'm, we're going to talk about this. We're not going to let it go. But he's, he's at the same time communicating grace and he's communicating love. Once we see that God sees, knows, experiences with us our worst, and he still likes us, he still loves us, he still wants us, that has a healing, that has a cleansing, it has a, a, a freeing effect. Instead of being uncomfortable in the presence of God, we become more and more comfortable. In the book of 1 John, it gives us kind of a step in this, this, this process. It's a simple one, and most of us are familiar with it. 1 John 1, 9, it says, if, that's a contingency, if we confess our sins, and that means I'm going to own it. I'm not going to make an excuse. I'm not going to try to legitimize it, minimize it, rationalize it. I'm not going to say everybody's doing it. I'm not going to say I did it because she did it, he did it, they did it. I'm not going to say you made me do it. You ever hear people like that? You made me hit you over the head with that hammer because, you know, you didn't like what I said or what I was wearing. Oh, didn't know I made you. But we got to say, no, I did this and it's wrong. That's level one confession. If we stay at level one confession, it's better than nothing. But, but it won't bring the cleansing effect that God wants. Look, look at the rest of this verse. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. We need to know that. There is forgiveness. He'll forgive our sins, but he doesn't stop there. What does it else it says he, he does? Purify. That's a process. Purify us from how much unrighteousness? All. So that gets into level two. Level two is, level one is, I did it. There's no excuses. Level two is, here's why I did it. I did it because I was selfish. I did it because I didn't really care about other people's feelings. I did it because I wanted it. it. It's confessing to God our motives and making no excuse for it. When we do that, now the cleansing can go deeper, and God starts to create this, this boundary, this barrier, as it were, in us where we don't want right, unrighteousness anymore, where we're really hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It, it is this proximity with Jesus where he's looking at the worst, and he still loves us, and we're, we're, not, we're not trying to excuse it. We're not trying to rationalize it. We're not saying, hey, everybody's doing it. We're, we're owning it. A real cleansing, a real purification process starts and, and attitudes and habits start to lose their power over us. We can't minimize the importance of this. Hebrews 8 adds a very important part to this. 
This is part, if you read the rest of this, this in the chapter uh, 8 in Hebrews, it's called the New Covenant or the New Testament. We have the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament or New Covenant, it's God's agreement with us that all who will receive God as he's revealed in Christ and become his followers, receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the indwelling of his spirit to help us to grow and be who we were meant to be. But there's a big, important part of this New Covenant. This is God speaking. He says, I will forgive their what? Wickedness. So it's here again. We're just saying what it is. Peter's denial of Jesus. Pure wickedness, no matter how you look at it. He was supposed to be the number one leader. And will remember their sins. Last two words are critical. What does it say? No more. There's the key. I need to know. I need to know that if I own this, if I confess this, if I confess the motives behind it, I need to know that the God who sees me and looks at me will actually forgive me and this thing is gone it's buried it's no more now here's where it gets complex God does this he doesn't just forgive he forgets this is his choice but you may have people in your life they'll never forget your offense they'll never forget who you were they'll never forget your fault they'll never forget your worst moments or your ear in your life they will they will treat you that way for 10 years 20 years 30 for the rest of your life they'll treat you as you were what you did you will never be forgiven by them they will remember your sins and your failures and they will remind you of it constantly that's a problem if we let it become there's a bigger problem the, the, the people that will try to chain us down to our past and to our failures that's problematic but it's manageable the worst the most difficult problem it's our memory it's our memory it, it, it's our incapacity to forgive ourselves for want of a better way of putting it's, it's our inability to agree with God if, if Jesus suffered and died on the cross that my sins can be abolished that they, they don't have to be brought up to me anymore God forget, he forgets them and wants me to forget them then for the sake of Jesus' sacrifice I am going to choose every time they resurface in my mind I'm going to choose to forget them and know that God forgets them I'm going to forget them and even if 20 people remind me of them and hold me to them I'm not going to listen to those voices but frankly it's not their voices that are hard it's my own voice in my mind that's the hardest to deal with so if you're locked into one of these cycles where you just keep having it come up in your mind again and again and it makes you feel bad and it incapacitates you and, and you kind of have some self-loathing and you feel like it'd be easier just to walk away and quit because you're never going to do it right, you've got to be willing to agree with God. I'm not going to remember that anymore. I have confessed it. It was terrible. I've owned every part of it. But now I'm going to choose to do what God wants me to do, which is not to remember it anymore that's a process sometimes Jeremiah 17 brings us to the heart of this thing heal me Lord and I'll be healed save me and I'll be saved this kind of cleansing this kind of healing can only be done in a direct uh, confrontation for want of a better term with Christ himself that's why Peter is being eye to eye with Jesus and Jesus is making him feel the fullness of the pain but he's also making him feel his love his acceptance his forgiveness simultaneously unless I know that God sees my worst I won't be able to ever accept that he really accepts me to the fullest and that brings you to the second point because the whole time Jesus is making Peter feel this pain I don't know if you caught it or not he's commending him so on the one hand he's confronting him about his failure but he's commending him to say so he says Peter do you love me 
Lord, come on, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my lambs. Feed, feed my little brand new flowers. And then he says, do you love me, Peter? Peter? Peter says, of course I love you. Lord, you know I love you. He says, okay, well, well take care of my sheep. And then he goes a third time. And says, Peter was hurt. He says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You, you know I love you. He says, okay, feed my sheep. Every time that Jesus made Peter relive that nightmare of failure, he, he was telling him, but I'm still with you. I, you're still my man. I still want you to serve me. I still want you to care for my people. You still have a duty. You still have a mission. You still have an opportunity. You still can be a channel of my grace, my blessing to multitudes of people. I want you, Peter. Nothing's changed. You're still my servant. You're still my son. You're still the one that I want, want to entrust with the leadership of this ministry. And Peter goes on for 35 years and serves Jesus faithfully, never, as far as we know, again, bungling his way into anything like this. So God has this way when we get into his presence that he makes us feel the pain so that it can be cleansed, but he also makes us feel as we're in his presence the love, the acceptance, the assurance. It motivates us, it stirs us, it gives us courage to go forward and to serve God right where we're at. Crucial confirmation is what Jesus was giving Peter and wants to give to everybody in this room today. So let's probe this a little bit. What do we mean by crucial confirmation? Luke 22. Now, this is very, very interesting. This is the night when Jesus was going to be betrayed where he's predicting uh, Peter's denial three times. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, so that your faith or your trust may not fail. Okay? What is that word right there? When you have turned. He didn't say if. He didn't say, Peter, if you ever come back to me, if you ever become loyal to me again. He says, when? Jesus knew Peter was going to fall, and he knew Peter would come back to him. He says, when you have turned, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So, so here's the thing that we get all tangled up in. When we, when we fall, when we go through those disgraceful issues in our life, the thing that haunts us, torments us, we somehow seem to feel like God didn't know that this was going to happen, that it somehow took him by surprise. It, it never takes God by surprise. It takes us by surprise. We maybe felt like, man, I would never be capable of such thing, but we find out we, we are. Now, there might be some of you that are thinking, well, man, so you mean like God already knows we're going to sin, so I'm going I'm to go sin because uh, God already knows I'm going to sin, and it's evidently no big deal to him. That's, that's a crazy way of thinking because sin is always destructive. I just took you through that cycle of things that it does inside of us, not to mention the consequences that usually happen outside. I'm just curious. How many of you remember the old Braddock skating rink? Okay, of course, it's burnt down now. Um, my first church was a little Baptist church in Middletown, and so we took our... our youth group there if I can think of the adults went too it was not that many of us all together and we go to Braddock and there was this one little boy little, little hyper super duper hyperactive little boy anybody know some super duper hyperactive little boys <laughs> um, his name was Andy Buren and um, by now he's probably well into his who knows 40s I, I don't know but anyway Andy Buren was like the Tasmanian devil some of you don't know who the Tasmanian devil is it's an old cartoon character just trust me on that one and um so we get to the skating rink. He had never had a pair of skates on in his life. 
And I'm telling you, I remember this day, I have never seen a human being fall in so many ways, so many times. The thuds, just the constant thudding of his skates in his head. He was a tough little dude, man. I mean, he, he just went down every which way. At one point, I saw him, he was out of control, and they have railings, you know, and he just kind of hit the railing in the worst way that a young man can hit the railing. And he got right back up. He got right back up, you know. Now, I wish I would have counted, but I didn't. But Andy probably fell down two or 300 times, okay? But he never meant to fall down once. You, you get where I'm going with this? You, you see, if I've really trusted Jesus, and I'm his follower, I don't want to ever disobey him. I know he knows what's best. I know he wants what's best. I love him. I never plan on falling, but as a human being, the sad truth is God knows I'm likely to fall and the falling can be part of the developmental process it's just like today I know what you're going to do you're going to go home and you're going to watch the Super Bowl right don't feel guilty about that feel guilty about watching two hours of commercials but don't feel guilty about watching the Super Bowl you should record it like I do that we get the whole game in an hour but I know there's Super Bowl commercials so they're better than normal I, I get that so when Travis Kelsey as I showed last week he extends himself catches the game winning touchdown okay prior to that you may see him fall without anybody even tackling him. You see in, in professional football games, a lot of times the players, they just get kind of hooked up in the turf, and they just fall. It's kind of like Pastor Pete. He got hooked up in the turf and, and broke, broke his ankle. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, when Travis Kelsey falls, he does not stay down could you imagine he, he he trips on the turf and he falls and he says, I'm, I, I quit I'm just useless I'll, I'm not playing this game anymore no he does what the proverb says Proverbs says this it says for though the righteous fall how many times and it may be 70 times 70 Jesus used that one they do what they rise again listen what Psalm 37 says Psalm 37 says they will not stay down because the Lord will help them get up the falling is not the problem. It's getting back up. And listen, Travis Kelsey, no matter what happens in the Super Bowl, after he is going to win, you'll see if I'm a prophet or not, but <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but his legacy, his legacy is already sure. Because when, when Taylor Swift breaks up with him, <laughs> she's going to write a song. <laughs> so he'll be remembered forever, one way or another. <laughs> Not a prophet, maybe, but we'll see. <laughs> the same Peter, 35 years later, by the way, when he, when he writes this letter, he's going to be martyred. Nero is rounding up Christians and killing them because of the burning of Rome. And so Peter says this, now he, 35 years old, remember he was, he was bragging earlier, they'll all run, Lord, but not me. I'm different. You know, he was proud. He was full of himself. Now, 35 years later, what's his first word? Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, and here's the really good news. You see, Jesus was restoring Peter. He was repudiating him, he was correcting him, but he was restoring him simultaneously at the same time. After a while, he will restore confirm strengthen and establish you now that's likely very personal for some of you in here today that that today today god wants to start 
the restoration process, the confirmation process, the strengthening process, the establishing process of some of you. But maybe he's got to have that really uncomfortable talk with you about that portion of your life that you have not allowed him to cleanse sufficiently. Therefore, it still haunts you. It still torments you. It still keeps rising to the surface even though you do everything you know to act like it didn't happen or it doesn't exist. So let's close with asking, asking ourselves three questions. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I, I mean, I, I'm a brother in this thing. We're, we're all human beings that are receiving the loving, cleansing, corrective grace of God together. Are there areas, are there areas of your lives where we're denying Jesus? We can all do that. There might be certain cultural context where we want to avoid people knowing that we are followers of Jesus. There's lots of, we can deny Jesus by our conduct, our behavior in certain areas of our lives. Are there, because a loving God wants us to have that uncomfortable conversation right now because he wants, to, wants us to correct that. Might we be living with some inefficiently resolved guilt and shame? If, if you're still being tormented by memories and you're trying to do things to get rid of them and you can't, and they're incapacitating on some degree, you've you got to get that, that one-on-one with Jesus, and he's going he's to take you through a cleansing healing process. And there, then last, where might the Lord be wanting us to participate in his eternal purpose and plan? He says to Peter, Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. I, I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. He's saying, I still want you to serve me. I haven't changed my mind about anything, Peter. Yeah, you fell. Sure, you, you, you may feel unworthy, but, but I'm going to so work in you that you won't recognize yourself 35 years later. When your life is about to end, you're going to be surprised at who I have enabled you to become. I just need you to get at it, Peter. I need you to serve. You're going to be a channel of my grace to multitudes of people if you'll just let me be at work in your life. God is absolutely saying that to every one of us in this room. You say, but Randy, I, I don't have a flock, man. I, you know, he, Peter had people. He, he was already so. Each one of us has a circle of influence in our lives. It's our friends, it's our family, it's our work associates, it's the people in our neighborhood, it's people in our different clubs and associations. They're, they're people that we know. They know us. We can influence them to various degrees. They're our flock. God has entrusted them to us. Right here in the church, part of your flock, the various ministries, the various opportunities. What am I saying? I'm saying that God does not want his people to be inactive. He doesn't want to deprive us of the joy of serving him by serving others and doing whatever it is we're equipped to do to extend his kingdom. We're depriving ourselves of the joy of having the energy of God flow through us and bless and touch the lives of others. So just like with Peter, he's saying, feed my sheep tend to my lambs and so forth he's saying to each and every one of us today so only you only God knows which of those three are pertinent to you today but but these are these are really precious moments these are life-changing moments and we don't have many of those we stay so busy when you go out that door you saw what that parking lot looks like you're just gonna be like little little bugs flying all around getting out of here and then the rest of your week is going to be a blur these are sacred moments where the Spirit of God has given us clarity where we can make decisions that we can have life instead of just living busily. We can have life as God intended it. Be wise. Seize those opportunities today. Let, let, let's pray. Folks, we, 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 we stand here together before God. Lord, you see us. We're your people. We are a broken and a needy people, but we're a willing people. May your spirit work in our hearts. Give us clarity on those places you want us to focus. We ask it all. 
In Christ's name, amen.